Oh, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So we are in um, Matthew. Uh, we're going to be picking up in chapter 21. The last passage uh, Dad covered uh, last week was um, the section that went from verse 23 down through verse 27. It's worth uh, glancing at that again because this section uh, that starts in verse 23 actually uh, goes all the way through the end of chapter 22. And the whole concept here is that these are various run-ins that Jesus has with the, the religious leaders. And what you'll see over the course of the rest of Matthew is that the focus right now, that there's this confrontation between Jesus and the uh, religious uh, leaders, the religious elite. Uh, then there's a transition where even though those guys are still there, the attention starts to turn to the crowd a little bit. And then as you move further into Matthew, uh, Jesus uh, cones in even more uh, uh, exclusively uh, to the ears of his disciples, uh, the message that he has for them as he uh, prepares to, to actually leave. And uh, you, so you'll see that, that whole arc. And it's worth uh, looking again at uh, this uh, last a passage from last week in verse 23. It says, And when he entered the temple, uh, so that tells us a lot right there. So Jesus is uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, he's in the temple, uh, probably on the outskirts of the temple where, uh, you know, as you got further and further in, it became more and more exclusive. There was the, the Gentile court. There was where if you were um, a, a woman, you could go. If you were a man, you could go. If you were a priest, you could go and so forth. Um, so this is probably a, uh, on the outskirts of the temple where, where everybody was, uh, was around. Uh, so it says, When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and says, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Now, is that a bad thing? No. In fact, not only was it within their right to do it, but they probably should be doing it, right? Uh, you'll notice... Uh, uh, Pastor Bobby pops in here so every so often. Uh, I'm surprised that hasn't been happening for the last 24 years. I mean, um, Dad and I could be saying almost anything to, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 people. If I was a pastor, I'd want to know, are they okay, right? I mean, it just makes sense. And so I, th I think that's a, a great thing that he does. Um, uh, it does make a little more nervous uh, sometimes, but uh, it's a great thing that he does because now he has a feel for who we are, and I have no doubt that if he needed to come alongside us and say, hey, you know, I think you ought to focus on this or, or fix something, I have no doubt that, that he would do that um, because that's his authority. And so this whole issue uh, was, why are you, why are, what's up here? You're, you're in the temple area and this is pretty much our territory so what are you doing and uh, you know what's your, your basis here so that that was not a bad question um, of course they may not have had the best motives but at least on the face of it that was an okay thing to do so in, in verse 24 it says Jesus answered them okay I'll ask you a question 
And this back and forth of I'm going to ask a question, and okay, well, now I'm going to ask you one, that was not a cocky or snotty thing. This was the way uh, that, you know, smart people might go back and forth a little bit, um, a rabbi to rabbi and so forth. Uh, I will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. And here's the question. The baptism of John, from where did it come? Now, he says the baptism of John, uh, again, and Dad went over this, but we'll hit it again. Uh, that doesn't just mean this event of John's baptism. When he says the baptism of John, that means all the preaching that, that John was doing, right? The whole repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and there's a messenger coming before me and I'm not worthy to untie his shoes and you know all this teaching that John was doing that's encapsulated in this concept the baptism of John you could say the teachings of John and so forth from where did it come from and Jesus says did it come from heaven or from man so they you can just kind of picture them Okay, we're going to huddle up now. We're going to, it says, they discuss it among themselves, saying, hmm, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, well, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd because they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered, so they answered Jesus, we do not know. Now, Dad mentioned our upcoming politics, and regardless of your persuasion, when politicians in general are given questions from the media and the press, maybe they ought to at least do what the scribes and Pharisees did and think a little bit about how their answer is going to turn out, right? This is, you know, maybe not, I mean, they should at least think, hmm, if I say this, what are they going to think? This group might think this and that group might, that sometimes will be a thoughtful and a wise thing to do. So they did think about it. They didn't come up with a good answer. And something else you'll never see politicians say, we don't know. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I say we don't know a lot. And maybe, maybe more often than some of my folks think I should. But in any event, uh, they said we don't, we don't know. And he said to them, okay, then I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things. So the point of rehashing this is... Um, the, the question of the moment was authority. Because there had been lots of other false messiahs traipsing through in these last few hundred years, right? The last prophet was Malachi. We got 400 years. And there had been some, you know, Uprisings of various sorts and kinds, some rebellions, some, um, uh, you had like the, the Maccabean revolt, you know, where, uh, which was a good thing, but it wasn't a Messiah thing. And then you had other people who would claim to be Messiahs, and of course they were proven to be wrong. So there had probably been other false Messiahs that they had asked these things to. And it was a question of authority. But they, they did know that this was a little bit different. Um, they had seen what John did. And, and this whole concept goes into where we're starting today, and that's verse 28. So Jesus says, in a phrase that's kind of unique to Matthew, so what do you think? Right? So what do you think? 
And I just, I, I think that's good, you know, and, and Jesus is fixing to uh, lay out uh, uh, a, a parable uh, for them to, to, to think about. He says, what, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he, that is the first son, and most people think that first meant older. Uh, in fact, some translations might say older. So, so he went to the first son, and he answered, I will not. No, not, not going to work in the vineyard. But afterward, he changed his mind, and he went. And the man went to his other son and said the same. Go work in the vineyard today, was what he had told him. And he says, I go, sir. Okay, yep, I'll do it. But he didn't go. And Jesus says, so which of the two did the will of the father? Well, they knew this one. They didn't have to talk about it. They said the first one. He said, well, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Ouch. <laughs> for John came to you, so back to John, for John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So, he doesn't really blame them at first. He says, John came to you in the way of righteousness. Now, interestingly, they've tried to trip Jesus up on the basis of what? That he wasn't following the various laws. That he wasn't living up to righteousness. That he was hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, right? He's, Jesus has been on the receiving end of that. Well, John was basically immune to all those things. He was not worldly. He was not, you know we, know, we know that he was very simply adorned. He had that look of the prophet, that he was all about God and all about this prophetic word. And so even though he came in this spirit of righteousness, even then the Pharisees and so forth weren't believing him. So they really weren't as ready and waiting to hear from God as, as they might have uh, pretended to be. But even when they saw the crowds, and again, what was John's message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, and the crowds were responding to that. So from afar, the, the scribes and Pharisees could have looked at the crowds and said, well, here's his prophet, and he's asking them to repent and get right with God, and they are repenting and getting right with God, and he is not saying anything that's not backed up with Scripture. This seems good. This seems really authentic. Even when they saw him with their changed lives of these tax collectors and prostitutes, it says, even when you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. 
So that's the indictment, that they were presented with the true gospel, so to speak, what we would call the gospel, true teaching, true prophecy, the first prophet, legit prophet, that they had had in 400 years, and they couldn't see it. They couldn't see it. They, by this time, as you know, they were all wrapped up in worldliness. Half of them were, um, you know, in the pockets of the Romans with some, you know, Greek influences and so forth. Even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. So there's this, still this lingering thing of authority. And, and notice, Jesus still hasn't answered them. But he's basically said, look what you did to John. Look what he did. You didn't see it. You didn't appreciate it. And I don't think it's too big of a stretch where he might be implying, and oh, by the way, look at what's happening with the people that I'm doing. You've seen and, and heard about the healings and the, all the things that are happening, and, and your response to me isn't really that much different. I mean, that's kind of in the, in the background there. But he goes on, and now he's going to really drive that point home that he's maybe just hinted at before. Verse 33. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower and leased it to tenants, and he went into another country. Some, some people say that um, that phrase, went into another country, um, could also mean he went away on a trip. He went away on a journey. He left town. Verse 34, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. So that would have been the deal, right? Um, I'm going to set you up for success. I'm going to bring in some people to work the land. And then in exchange for you doing all this, uh, you're going to get some of the profits and I'm going to get some of the profits. Um, seems fair. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. The master, again, verse 36, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, well, they'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and have his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So it's pretty rough story. Three servants were killed. More than three servants were killed the second trip. And then the son is killed. So this is the third image that we've got of the vineyard, right? We had the, the right before we had the two sons in the vineyard. <clears throat> And then back at uh, 
verse, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 20, uh, when um, Dad was talking about um, the, the payment of the people that had been working and even the, the last guy that starts working at 11, um, or the 11th hour, he gets paid as much as it. That was all happening in the vineyard too. So we've got this, this is a third vineyard story. Um, so it was a common theme. It was probably one of the most uh, valuable crops uh, in that land, uh, and it was something that was well known to people. Um, so this was a something that they would have really known. So when you hear this story, there was a master who planted a vineyard. That makes sense. He put a fence around it. Why do you put a fence around something? You protect it. You kind of define where your boundaries are. Say, okay, everything within these boundaries is, is, is mine. It's mine to do with what I want. Uh, it sets up protection around it. That identifies where, the, where the, the, the boundary is. It says he dug a wine press in it. So if you dig a wine press, you're expecting to have some grapes to put in there. Right, so he's setting them up for every success. He's expecting produce. And it says built a tower, so there's a watchtower where they could uh, go up there, um, guard it, look out for problems, and so forth. So a lot of investment here. Then he leased it to the tenants and so forth. So this was kind of a big deal. If you go back to, you don't have to flip there, but in Isaiah chapter 5, there, this whole chapter pretty much is talking about the vineyard of the Lord. I'll read just a little. Verse 1, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. So right now, you, you know this really isn't a love song about a vineyard, right? You don't write a love song about a piece of property. So you start to think, okay, who's, who's the vineyard here? Let me sing a love song for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. So now we realize, okay, we're talking about the, my beloved that, had, that owns this vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stone and planted it with choice vines, built a watchtower in the midst of it, hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. Does that sound familiar to this story? So for these Pharisees who would have had to know pretty much the whole, the entire Old Testament by heart, when Jesus starts talking about, hey, here's a parable. There was a master who had a vineyard, and he built a fence around it, and he dug a wine bed in it, and he put a watchtower over it. I mean, even us, perhaps as slow as we are, we know, oh, I've heard this story before, right? He looked for it to yield grapes back in Isaiah here. But it yielded wild grapes. So this was a vineyard that was set up for success, but it didn't produce like it should have produced. Verse 3 says, 
And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? In other words, what else could I have done? I've set this, this up for success. I have invested in this. There is no reason for it not to be successful. So as these scribes and Pharisees are hearing this, uh, they have to know that this has a spiritual component, that Jesus really isn't just talking about a vineyard because he's pulling out straight out of Isaiah these elements of this vineyard. So now we know that God's probably involved and in how God's working with his children is involved and in this nation of Israel thing who were probably the wild grapes, how this is going on. And now these tenants, you know, well, who was in charge of the nation of Israel? Who was in charge? The scribes and Pharisees, right? They were in charge of the temple. And the whole, the whole of Israel was focused on what you do at the temple, right? Um, we've got huge sections of the first five books of the Bible are how to behave, how to do your sacrifices. Remember when we studied about the tabernacle, um, the atonements, the, all the religious holidays. Everything was organized around the temple because that was the focus, and these scribes and Pharisees were in charge of the temple. That's why they were asking Jesus about who his authority was. And Jesus is saying these tenants, these people who have been put in responsibility, these tenants who have been asked to steward and manage the vineyard, to prepare the vineyard for harvest, to collect that harvest and, and be ready to present that harvest to the master, who is that? Well, that's these scribes and Pharisees, and Jesus is kind of saying, what have you done to get my people ready? Because God's, God's wanting to know how you've handled what he's given you, because he did everything he could possibly do to set you up for success. Just like Isaiah said, what, what more could I have done? So verse 39, they took him, that is the son, and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So here's the question, verse 40. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. So they knew, they gave the right answer. They gave the right answer. There's some word play here that um, the commentators say the NIV gets right where it says, he will put those wretches to a wretched death. <clears throat> that it uses that same, that same root word. He will put those wretches to a wretched death and let out the vineyard to other tenants. So they have accurately described what's going to happen to them. Somebody else is going to get put in charge of what they have had exclusive rights over. 
Jesus goes off. So Jesus said to them, now this might be a little insulting, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So this is from Psalm 118, verse 43. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you. So, I don't know how often the Pharisees and scribes thought of themselves as being stewards of the kingdom of God. They had probably lost their way. They had been corrupted. Um, how sobering to realize, oh, wow, we have been, this vineyard, this is the kingdom of God that we've been entrusted with. Surely they would have known. It's going to be taken away and given to a people producing its fruits. That people producing its fruits um, is the word that we get ethnic from. Ethnos. It's in other words, it's going to be going to a different group of people. And, you know, if we, you know, sometimes maybe we do get tunnel vision, but there are way more Christians in the rest of the world than there are in the USA. There are way more Christians in several countries than there probably are in the USA. Um, this is a multi-ethnic kingdom of God. Um, we have responsibility for our portion of, uh, of course, but but we're not alone. Verse forty-four: And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Um, there's a change here in tone, right? Uh, it's a little bit different topic. He's changing the, the picture from the vineyard to this building metaphor. Um, and apparently it's also kind of a word play where this word that they use could be, it basically means the head of the corner, apparently. So it could be the cornerstone or it could mean the capstone, the, the, the topmost stone that would maybe hold an arch together. Um, and it can be taken both ways, and you can kind of see it here. It says, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. In other words, if you trip and fall on it, you know, it's, the stone's not going to be hurt. You're going to be hurt. On the other hand, you know, this can, if this is going to fall on anyone, it's going to crush him. In other words, um, uh, watch out how you treat and respect this stone. And they, they, they got it. They started to get it anyway. Verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. 
Um, okay. Do you think they had to huddle for that one? <laughs> you know what? I think he's talking about us. <laughs> I, think, I, I think he may be talking about us. What should we do? Verse 46, And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Already, they're looking to arrest him. Now, we've already had the triumphal entry, right? So this is what we call Holy Week. Some people think this was maybe Tuesday of Holy Week. So we're not far from the cross. This is pretty explicit, right? They are questioning someone who is teaching and preaching in their temple. And not only has he sidestepped the question, he has presented them with um, a prophetic word, you might say, um, that they have rightly understood to mean them. And if you're threatened, and worldly, you're going to try to fight back. You're going to try to fix that problem. And right now, he is a problem. So they want to arrest him. They can't do it in public. you got to hand it to them. They had a good feeling for the crowd. You know, they could sense, you know, what the room was telling them, so to speak. Um, they could tell. They could tell. They feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. It's going to get more obvious as the week goes on, as Matthew continues to walk us through. But I think it's, it's worth just thinking about some of the basics of this parable. Was it reasonable for the master to ask his servants to work the land. Absolutely. Was it reasonable to expect a harvest? Absolutely. Um, it may be a little bit difficult to fully apply this passage to us, but I do think that we each have a certain amount of responsibility. Um, in many ways, God has set our territory up for success. Um, of course, and we know from other parables that he's told about what you do with your talents, he wants us to be good stewards of what he's given to us. He wants to see a, a payment for that. What the Pharisees unfortunately missed is that if they had taken their eyes and put it on God and, and being a good steward, do you think they would have been rewarded for that? Do you think it was just doing it out of obedience? No, I mean, that's not the way God works. He, he rewards those who are faithful. The one thing I also like out, out of the first parable is this concept of 
changing your mind. Have you ever been asked to do something and that split second somebody asked you to do it, you knew you really didn't want to do it? And maybe you even said you'd do it, but that little expression that came right before your words said otherwise? Am I the only one that does this? <laughs> Um, but it says here he changed his mind he said no I don't want to do that and sometimes that part of me that's still a work in progress might say or think I don't really want to do that but here I think there's an element of grace here that we can change our mind. And ultimately, when we're confronted with the truth, remember this was about John the Baptist and what was their response to his teaching. And he said, you know, why didn't you change your mind, basically, is what he's saying. So I think the, the proper response for all of us, if we're confronted with the truth, we can and should change our minds. And we're not, according to this, we're not judged that we didn't have that gut answer right to begin with. We're judged by what we actually did, not by what we initially thought or said. And so I, th I see an element of grace here, but I also see that it's important to do what you're supposed to do, right? I mean, what does James say? Are we just supposed to hear the word? We're supposed to be doers of the word, not just hearers, right? So the second son said the right thing. Said the right thing. He knew the answer. Sure. Sure, Dad. I'll do that. But he didn't follow through. He was the one that was judged. So I think for, for all of us... Um, Thankfully, and if we kind of merge these stories together a little bit, I think God does send multiple messengers to us sometimes. And I think the answer is he's wanting to get us to change our mind about things. And so the Pharisees were criticized because they were face-to-face -face with the truth, but they didn't change their mind. They weren't judged because they came from a bad place. They weren't judged because they had been corrupt. It was kind of God met them where they were, and they had that opportunity to change, and they didn't. Paul talks about the renewal of our mind. Um, so I think even on this side of the cross, uh, there are going to be times when, when God continues to present us over and over with the truth, and as our minds get renewed by the encouragement of Christian fellows, um, good preaching, interaction with scripture, our mind does get changed. And it becomes easier to change our mind. It becomes easier to be that faithful steward. And, um, and that's, that's this side of the journey that we're on. So um, 
we're moving to the cross and the message here is what do you do with Jesus to the Pharisees and scribes what are you going to do with Jesus the crowds what are you going to do with Jesus to the disciples they're going to come face to face with what are we going to do with Jesus that's where we're heading and that's going to be the question for all of us so probably a good stopping point um any comments Lord, I found out that the Lord's work is going to be done is whether or not I want to receive a blessing from him. I think that's that's a good that's a really good point John uh, he said the, the Lord's work is going to be done in fact I, I had made a point um uh, saying that just because just because the servants didn't do what they wanted was that really going to stand in the way of the vineyard owner getting his way? No. No. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Um, it will get done. Good point. Anything else? Alright. Let's pray. Father we do thank you that You have, um, you, we thank you first of all that you have a kingdom, that you called together a people that you wanted to be yours. And we know that it's because of Jesus' work on the cross that we can get grafted into that family and we can be part of this ethnos, this new group of people that you're going to give the kingdom to, to participate in your work, to to have the opportunity to work in your vineyard, to have the opportunity to see the successes that you bring. We thank you that we get to partake in that. We thank you that for individually you have gifted us in certain ways. You've, you've put us in the families that we're in, in the church that we're in, in the cities and towns that we're in uh, for a reason. And we just pray that you'd help us to continually participate with the Holy Spirit that would change our minds and change our minds as we are faithful to expose ourselves to your truth. We thank you for Jesus and for who he is to us and for the salvation we have through him. Amen. Thanks everybody.